You guys seen Waldo recently? Waldo? Do we have a Waldo here? You found him? Okay. I should have had somebody planted in like a red and white striped shirt. Wouldn't that be great? And like have him stand up and like, there's Waldo, you know? <laughs> we found him. Well, one of the things we loved to do when we were, we were little kids was we had these books and they were called Where's Waldo? Do you kids still do this? Do kids do this? Hopefully, yeah. And, and you look at these pages and there's like all these people, you know, standing in this scene and there's just this, it's such a busy, busy picture. And somewhere in the middle of all that, there's like Waldo and he's like, you know, like this, you know, and he's got his red and white striped shirt on and you gotta find him. One time I think it was a picture of all like red and white striped shirt people, you know, and you gotta find out which one looks like Waldo's face, you know, amongst this huge picture. And this is what we did growing up, you know, um, or, or, Remember this? This was like, I feel like this was 90s. You used to have these holographic posters, and if you put your face really close to it, you, you know what I mean? You remember that? It was like this picture of like all these colors, right? And it was like on a poster, and, and the poster was on the wall. And if you got like really close to the poster, and, and you could see something. But usually you couldn't see anything, right? I mean, how many of you have done that? You look at me like I'm crazy now, okay? You had to get close to it. You had to like hit your head two times, pray to a pagan deity, and maybe you would see the hologram, you know? Maybe. Maybe you'd see the cat. If you pray to a pagan deity, you see the cat. That makes sense, right? Right? Okay. Sorry. We're dog lovers, so sorry about that. Um, sometimes I think, sometimes I think, in the middle of trials and difficulties, it's hard to see grace. Like you notice all the songs we sing about this morning, most of them had the theme of trials in them and also had the theme of grace in them. And, and, and we can sing about it, and those two themes go really well together. But on the practical level, it can be like trying to look at the hologram, like I can't see it, trying to find Waldo. I don't see him. I give up. I don't have enough time to spot the little striped-shirted guy in this picture. I just don't, I don't have the time. And when you're going through trials, you don't, you don't even necessarily want to look for it, right? I mean, you're looking at the problem. You're not looking for grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. We don't deserve it, but he shows up in many different ways and he's doing things on our behalf, good things on our behalf. I just think it's hard to see it. I think it's hard to spot it. Today is the finale of Job. And so we're looking at Job 42. And I think in some sense, it's a lot easier to see grace looking back. It's that 2020 vision in hindsight, right? But I still want to do it. I want to I want to look at the last chapter of Job and say, do you see the grace? Can you spot it? It's there. Would you turn to Job 42? If you can't see it, if you just take your Bibles and hold them like this to your face, it will, you'll see it. All right. All right. <laughs> And, and some kid's going to try it. I'm so sorry, you know. <laughs> Johnny's going to be like, I, I, yeah, it's not working. It's not working, Pastor. Sorry. 
This is it. Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I've heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namanite went and did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then he came Then came to him all of his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comfort him for all the evil the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons. And three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there was no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years, saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. I don't know about you, but whenever I watch a movie, I'm always like, the ending usually disappoints me, you know? Usually I'm not happy, you know, because it, it, happily ever after is a little too happy for me, you know what I mean? Like, like that conflict's over, but I know there's another one coming, so you can't tell me everything's okay, and yet that's the typical Disney movie ending. I actually kind of like endings that leave you a little on a little more ambiguous note, you know? Like, well, what's going to happen next? Well, where's where it going to go? You know, it, it, it's, it's, I love Star Wars, you know, Empire Strikes Back, you know, kind of like it's unresolved. How, how, how can you leave the guy frozen? And, and the rest of you are going like, well, what, what's the one in the world is that? Do you like the ending of Job? I'm not going to take a show of hands. We're not going to do that today. Do you like it? Is it a little too neat and tidy? Well, I want to address that by the end. But first, I want to spot God's grace in these last words of the book. Would you look at this with me? I hope you see it. I hope you can feel it as we look at it. In the first eight verses of chapter 42, Job starts like, okay, so we know God does a couple things. You know, God has his speeches. Remember the first speech where God says, 
Do you know this? Do you know that? Where were you when the sun came up? And where were you when the moon was put in place? Where were you, Job? How do you know? And, and Job, the answer is no, no, no. I don't know any of those things that you've just told me about. And, and then God goes on and, and, and he says, well, consider the behemoth. Consider Leviathan. We talked about that last week and, and how behemoth is similar to Job. He, he can trust God. And Leviathan is kind of like the Lord in that you, you can't put a hook in his nose. You, you can't tell him what to do. He, he's stronger than that. He's more wild than that. We talked about all that. And so now Job quotes God in the first eight verses here. And he's like, you know, um, verse 3, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? You know, that's what God said to Job. And Job is saying, God, I agree with you. In the past, Job had questioned God's policies like and if you've been part of this Job series, you've heard me say this a gazillion times. Job's big beef with God is I don't think it's a good policy, God, for you to take your most righteous servants and make them suffer. It seems to me you ought to take your best people and bless them because they're worshiping you, right? They're following you. They're loving you. They're obeying you. Why in the world would you make your best people suffer? Maybe we've asked that question this morning, even as we've talked about different things. Why? Makes no sense. But, and Job has even occasionally crossed the line of saying, like, God, I, I think you're really slow with your justice. God, I think you're afflicting me for no reason. God, you know, he, he's come very close to, like, just outright accusing God. And he has crossed a line for sure. He's, he's, he's darkened God's counsel. That's God's words. You've taken my truth and, and, and somehow you obscured it. You made it hard. But can we see grace in this? Yes. Number one, I see the grace of Job stumbling towards the truth. Stumbling towards truth. Job didn't have it all figured out, right? God rewards the righteous. He punishes the wicked. That's easy. That's clear cut. You reap what you sow. That's the way the world works. And suddenly now you've got a righteous man suffering like no one has ever suffered before. And that's not fair. And yet, even though Job crosses the line and he's kind of, he says some things about God he wishes he could take back, there's still a grace there in stumbling towards the truth about God. It's like this. Every night I go to bed and one of us, either Christy or myself, have to turn off the lights in the room. Guess who does that? Me. Every night. It's true, right? Every night. I turn off the lights in the room. That's my job, you know. So uh, it, it's hard, I know, right? Um, but, but no, the hard part is this. When the lights go out, you've got to find your way to the bed without falling over something, right? Because it's dark. And I know there's a lamp right next to my bed that Christy put there for that express purpose. But I don't use it. I don't use it usually. So it's all my fault. I understand this. I turn off the light. I try not to step on my belt that's on the floor and hurt my foot and, and, and not say words I don't want to say. And, and, and I make my way to the bed through the darkness, and then we're all okay. And I think it's like that when we suffer, when we go through difficulty. I don't know what God is doing. I don't, even, I don't think I even understand him. Why would a good God, a loving God, do this in my life? Why? I don't understand this God that we're worshiping on Sunday. And I think that was Job. I don't understand him. Who is he? 
He's become somebody I don't recognize anymore. But all the while, Job was asking questions. He was asking why. He was seeking. As Mohia said a few weeks ago, he was lamenting. And in his lament, in his grief, in his stumbling and grasping and looking for the light and looking for the bed, looking for a place to rest, somehow he fell into the truth. And that's God's grace. So maybe you know somebody that's having a hard time and it seems like, oh man, they're questioning everything. Maybe... Maybe what the Lord is going to do is help them graciously stumble into a better knowledge of who he is. How good he is, how loving he is, how compassionate he is, how powerful he is. That's grace. Because in the darkness you don't see much. Number two. If you look at verses 6 through 10. Job says, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And then, and then, uh, and then God, you know, speaks about Job uh, reconciling with his friends. I think I'm going to save that for just a second. But let's talk about Job's reconciliation with God. Oh, I know what I'll point out to you. Verses 7 through 10, 7 through 8 or 9. Uh, you notice what God calls Job over and over again. You probably heard it when I said it earlier, right, when I read it. My servant Job, my servant Job, my servant Job. After Job repents, God starts calling him again, my servant Job. Remember that from the beginning? When Satan's in heaven, in the, in, you know, near, near the Lord there, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? This is Job's title from the beginning. And he's got it back. He's reconciled with God. Now, Remember after the first speech that God gave, like, where were you when I made everything? Where were you? You know, do you know how, how I give pray, how I give food to the lions? Do you, do you know how I do this or do that? And, and then Job said, I put my hand over my mouth. Remember that part? He's silent. In Job's silence, you know, you've got this guy that's like overwhelmed, right? Like, he's got nothing to say. I got nothing. And God's like, so think about the behemoth and think about the Leviathan. Like, God just presses in. And, and, and for a second there, you're like, God, give the poor guy a break, you know, because he's already, like, overwhelmed with, like, I don't know any of this stuff, God. I, I'm just going to say nothing. I'm, I got nothing, you know. And then God's like, no, I got more to say to you, Job, so brace yourself like a man. Here it comes. Why? Why does God have a second speech? And I think one of the reasons why it's because Job hadn't actually repented yet. Like, silence is not repentance. Silence doesn't reconcile. You know? i got to take active steps. I have to repent. I have to do something to actually make things right with God. I need to come to him and say, yes, I was wrong. I said things that were wrong. I said things that were too wonderful for me. And I'm sorry. And then the reconciliation happens. The silence isn't enough. Job has to do something. You ever say something insulting or unkind to your spouse? Men, you know you do it all the time. So don't tell me you don't. You say something that was a little bit unkind or, or, or a little bit, you know, just wasn't the right thing to say at that time. And you know it. You see it on your wife's face. And you're like, oh, I messed up. I, I said this. You know. Now, if you just leave it alone, maybe she'll forget. 
but maybe not. And you got to make that thing right. And I think that's that, that, that way with God. Like Job said some things about God that were not accurate. And he's got to take care of what he has said. Now, he said a lot of good things as well. Probably more good than bad, right? I mean, a lot more good than bad. But he said some inaccurate things. And, and just like if you said something you regret to a person, you go back and say, yeah, I blew it. I blew it. And then you can restore that. Do you need to do that with God? Have you said things about him or to him that you regret? By the way, when it says repent, the word repent in Hebrew has this idea of regret in it. That's why I said the word regret. The idea is Job is saying, I am regretting what I said about you, God. And I'm turning from that way of thinking about you. Maybe you need to do that. To re- not so that you're saved, you know. You know, saying the wrong thing about God is not like the unforgivable sin. But maybe there's a blockage between you and God, just like a relationship with a person. And if you don't deal with it, the blockage will always be there. You don't want that. So you go to him and you deal with it. Number three. If you look at verses seven through nine. God starts dealing with the friends. The three friends, by the way, you notice Elihu, friend number four, is not in here. Did a whole sermon on Elihu. He's not mentioned here. Again, I kind of think Elihu was more right than wrong. You know, I kind of think he was on the right track. I think Elihu's a good guy here. But the three friends, it says, uh, verse 7, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So, so kill some bulls and some rams and offer up a burnt offering. And, and then, then he says, this is crazy. And my servant Job, this is verse 8, shall pray for you. And I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job had. He says it two times. So I, I got to think at the end of the day, the three friends were really wrong. Job was a little wrong. It's not good to be a little wrong either, just to be clear. But Job's friends really blew it in, in their counsel to Job. Remember what they said? They said, for the most part, righteous people have it good in life. Wicked people have it bad. Job, that means you did something wicked. You need to repent of it. You know, they kind of simplified everything. Job, you must have sinned bad for God to be doing this. And they had it wrong. They had it totally wrong. They mischaracterized God entirely. So, um, I love the grace I see here. God's like, I'm going to make it right. I will not pay them back. If you see that in verse 8, I'm not going to pay them back according to their folly. As long as they offer sacrifices. Remember, sacrifices cover sin, like Jesus' cover sin. But this is really interesting. Job needs to pray for you. Job needs to pray for you. So number three, there's grace that's released through prayer. Remember at the beginning of Job, Job kind of acted like a priest for his family. His kids would have birthday parties, right? And Job would worry, maybe they've cursed God in their heart. So I'm going to offer sacrifices just to make sure they're okay. And I, I kind of question Job's motives there. That's a little bit strange to me, a little bit. Still is. But here at the end, this makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? When you think about it. When Job prays for Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, when he prays for them, two things are getting fixed there. 
there's a, there's a horizontal fix. I think Job is fixing things with his friends. You ever prayed for your enemies? Ever prayed for someone that is hard on you, that is difficult to be around, that has said some things to you that, that really make you upset? Have you prayed for them? And, and there's something in the relationship that is, that is worked out when we pray and ask God for favor on those people that, that you're having the hard time with. So something horizontal is fixed. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Kind of makes sense. There's a vertical thing too, though, where, where Job is working things out with the Lord here too. And he's saying, I want things to be right with my friends. I want to obey you, God. I, I want your favor in my life. And, and if you look... If you look in verse 10, this is one of the big observations I made when I first started studying this on Monday. I was like, oh my goodness. Am I, sorry, Tuesday I studied. Memorial Day was off, right? Um, on Tuesday, one of, the, one of the things that jumped out at me, and I was like, what does this mean? Verse 10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when, when, when he had prayed for his friends. Not before. Not, you know, it, Job had to pray, and then Job's life changed. The grace that Job was going to receive, the, the wealth he was going to get back, his health, when he prayed for his friends, he was still penniless, he was still riddled with disease, and he still had no children, and an angry wife, you know? He had all of that going on, and God said, pray for your friends. And Job could have been like scratching himself, you know, scratching the sores. Hand me the glass, right? Hand me the glass and scratch these open. Oh, my goodness. And yet God says, I want you to set that aside right now and pray. Pray for your friends. Can't think about them. I'm thinking about me. No, pray for your friends. And he prays. And only after he prays is he restored. Is he restored? I don't know. Is it possible that all this garbage in your life is a restoration problem, is a prayer problem, where, where, where you haven't taken things to God? You're holding bitterness? I don't know. And God wants to release the grace. It's like, here's the grace. I'm ready to give it out. I've got it all stored up. I'm ready. I'm ready. You can have it. God even walks Job through it. I think it's kind of like manners, right, with our kids. That's how I look at it. Like, God says, Job, I want you to pray for your friends. And then I'm going to forgive them, and I'm going to deal. I'm not going to treat them according to their folly. And it's kind of like at dinner time, right? Um, I want you to say, you know, you're sitting at the table, and your kids are like, you know, give me the green beans. Actually, your kids never say that, actually. Not the green beans. Uh, give, me the, give me the strawberries. How about that? That's right. That's true. Give me the strawberries. You're like, give me. How about please pass? All right, can you, can you please, please give me the strawberries, you know? And you're like, no, no, I'm getting it all wrong, you know? Take your plate to the sink, you know? You, you teach your kids habits and manners and ways to relate well to people. And, and God's doing this with Job. Job, I'm just telling you, you've got to pray for your friends. You've got to pray for them. Or this grace will not be released. It won't be released on them, and it won't be released on you. Think about that in your unsaved friends, right? You want to release grace on them? 
I'm not saying it's like a magic word. I'm not saying that. I'm saying if you want to see grace released, God chooses to work through prayer. It's not my, I didn't set it up like this. He set it up. I want to save people through prayer. So pray. Don't pray, don't save. Pray, and I save. But God, you can do anything, right? No plan of yours can be thwarted. I know, I know. So pray, and I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll unleash my power. And you'll see my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay. Um, I don't know. That, that one just, that one hits me hard. Um, the other thing I love about this is uh, how many times does Job ask for a mediator in the book of Job? How many times does Job say, oh, I wish there was someone to stand between me and God to argue on my behalf? I need an advocate. I need an attorney. You know, this is what Job has been saying all through these chapters. And now Job is the advocate for his friends. Isn't that incredible? He's the advocate. You're an advocate, right? You're a go-between calling out to God for people that need his grace in their life. It's you. It's Job. I don't know. I always joke with my friends, my colleagues in ministry, I always know the preacher's favorite point because they get really excited about it. Well, as you can see, that's my favorite. Um, sorry. I'm not sorry. But it's just, I love, I love that. <clears throat> I love that it's, the grace is only released when Job prays. <clears throat> Number four. All right. Here's the part some people have trouble with. I bet you liked everything you heard up to this point. Some people have a problem with the endings, you know. Um, and this is the ending. It seems a little kind of neat, right? Job restored the for- God restored the fortunes of Job in verse 10 and gave Job twice as much as he had before. So he has twice as many uh, camels, sheep, oxen. They even number them. And as you notice, if you go back to chapter 1, they are doubled. You know what's not doubled is his children. His children are not doubled, except they are. Because if you lose 10 and you gain 10, that means you still got 20. I want to put that out there. They are doubled, but not doubled as in he had 10, and now he has 20 more. It's, it's 10 more because his other kids presumably are with, in the presence of God through faith with him in heaven. <clears throat> what else do I want to say about the end of this? There's so much at the end. Uh, my time grows so short. So much of Job, oh, by the way, the other reason maybe he didn't have 20 more kids, for goodness sake, what do you expect of his wife? You know, 20 more kids? Just, just you know, trying to think like a woman as I'm preaching this, you know. Not, yeah, it's 10 more, for goodness sake. Um. Yes. So much of Job has been, you reap what you sow. So many of the arguments Job makes and the friends make is like, if you do good, good stuff will happen. If you do bad, bad stuff will happen. And and, and I think at the end here, can, can we say this? I think for Job, he can kind of set aside the sowing and reaping thing for a second and just say, look at what God has done. I'm a blessed man, and it's all grace. 
But what would you rather have in your life? <clears throat> like, don't, don't get me wrong. Sowing and reaping, you reap what you sow. That is a principle, that is a proverb that we often see in effect for lots of lives. There's no doubt in my mind about it. God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Right? But would you rather have sowing and reaping 100% in your life or grace at 100% in your life? I'll take the grace. You know, give me the grace. And it's the grace of God that says, I'm going to give you double. And I'm going to give you ten kids. And oh, by the way, your three daughters, they're going to be gorgeous. They're beautiful women. You, you, you ever wonder to scratch your head like, why in the world does the emphasis on the girls in this at the end of this story? And I don't know, but I will make a couple of suggestions. Why are, the late, why are the girls named? Why is it said that they're beautiful? And by the way, if the Bible says you're beautiful, you better believe you're beautiful. Um, they're named, they're beautiful, and the last thing is, they get the same inheritance as the sons. And therein, I think, is the key. Normally, daughters would not get the same as sons in their society. Remember at the beginning, when the sons had birthday parties, who'd they invite? They invited the sisters to come to their homes. Come over here while we feast and celebrate and enjoy all that we have. And at the end here, you see the daughters enjoying and the daughters receiving the same inheritance. I mean, this is super, like, with the times, is it not, to treat them all equally? Unheard of in that society, but Job does it. I think it's just showing the bountiful blessing that everybody in that family receives from then on. I also think it says this. How many of us have relationships with our kids that we wish were better? There are some hard things in life with our kids, no doubt about it. And what you see in Job's life is the relationships are good, they're working, they're amazing young women, and there's a sweetness to their family that Job is enjoying. That's what I see when I read this. God's blessings are just pouring out on them. Now, some of you might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's just way too tidy, and life is not like that. When I've suffered, I have not gotten twice back. When I had a business deal go south, I haven't seen the money come back double. You know what I mean? You have those stories. I know some of them. So you're like, this is so unrealistic. How can I even take this seriously? Let me tell you how I read it and how I can take it seriously, and maybe this will help you. Remember that day when Satan showed up in heaven and God said, Remember, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him in all the earth. He's a righteous man. And Satan says, He only worships you because you bless him. He only worships you because he has reaped what he sowed. Satan doesn't say that, but that's the idea. Your policy is to pour out the blessing on the righteous, and Job's the righteous man. He's, he's the most righteous man of that time. If you take stuff from him, he will curse you. Because honestly, God, your policies are bad. When you bless the righteous, you make them selfish. That's what Satan's saying to God. God accepts the challenge, right? Job never curses God through the entire book. He... Job never asked for his stuff back. Never. 
He passes the test. And now at the end, you get a, we're going to go back to the way things used to be. Do you get it? God has proven that if he blesses a, a righteous man, a man who loves him, that man is still able to worship him wholeheartedly. God has demonstrated that. If you take everything away from a righteous man, he will still bless. God has been proven correct. Satan has been proven incorrect. So now at the end, God can say, I'm putting my policies back into effect. Job's going to get his stuff back and then some. So I see this as like a, a bookend. In the beginning, Job had a lot. In the middle, his all taken away. And at the end, he has his stuff back. Nothing can replace his kids. But he has more kids. Listen. I want to say this right. In the end of of this life, you may not see the great restoration that Job saw. Your health may not return. Your wealth may not return. Your kids may not turn out the way you hope. I understand that. In the end, for every Christian, though, we are in heaven with Christ. And the curse is wiped away. Wealth is abundant. Your health is perfect. And so when I read the end of Job, I think to myself, this is the destination for every Christian. Heaven with Christ in a perfect place. Job just got a taste early. Job got a taste early. So I hope that as, as, we, as we finish this up, I know I went a little long. I, I had so much I wanted to summarize and, 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 and encapsulate. If I was going to summarize the book of Job, I'd say it like this. When you were a kid, <clears throat> did you ever take a magnifying glass and let the sun catch it and fry ants? Did you? <clears throat> did you ever did you ever step on a lightning bug and smear them? And then you see all the little gunk, you know, the, the glowing gunk? Did you? Did you ever torment a toad by capturing him and poking at him? God's not like that. Some people read the book of Job and say, I think the message is, God is saying, I am God, you're not, so shut up. You know, you've heard people say this. I'm God, I have all power, Job, you don't, you don't know much of anything, so just stop. I don't believe that's the book of Job. I think the book of Job is, I am God, not Nile, he is God, He is loving, compassionate, and the point of Job is you can trust him. You can trust his plan, his purposes. You can trust him. And you can see marks of grace if you look for it. Would you stand with me and we're going to be dismissed. Lord Jesus, here we are at the end, and uh, 
We want to walk out of here today trusting you more. We want to walk out of here today being able to notice the grace that's all around us. Oh God, I pray for those that are in the valley when the lights are out and they can't see anything worthwhile. Oh God, may you help them lift up their eyes and see where their help comes from. God, I pray for those that are on the mountaintops and celebrating and life is good. May they see your abundant grace and praise you for it. At the end of the day, may we not reap after all the sin we sowed. May we get grace. Grace, grace in abundance. And so may we leave today with grace on our lips and grace in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Lord bless you.